Many people are not able to distinguish, many pastors, tragically, are not able to distinguish between the prophecies that relate to his second coming and the prophecies that relate to his return for the church. Many people don't even know that there is a distinction between those two things. And so we're going to look at that. And we look at the tribulation and we look at the anguish, the sorrow, the suffering, the misery. Do we have to go through all that? That's why I want to cover what I would like to cover. So here we are. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. Eternity past, eternity future, right in the center is the cross. That is the focal point of all of human history. All prophecy in the Old Testament focuses down to one person. And then all prophecy from that one person spreads out to include us all. What an amazing plan. It all centers in Christ, which is why he's called the cornerstone. We can break what we call the Old Testament, which is literally, we're saying the Old Covenant, referring to the covenant that was made with Israel. We can break the Old Testament down in half. Uh, we basically have two ages, before and after. Before Abraham. That's where everything changes. I would refer to the earlier age, for lack of a better term, as the age of the Gentiles. There were no Jews. Isn't it amazing that God calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea and starts a new race? The youngest race on the planet, the Jewish race. So the age of the Gentiles is then followed by the age of the Jews, or we could say the age of the law. All of that leads up to the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With the finished work of Christ on the cross, we start an entirely new age in our marvelous church age. After the church age, seven years, there are so many passages that make it clear that it's seven years that it can't even, you can't even contest it. Seven years of tribulation. According to Jesus in Matthew 24, the most awful time that human history ever has or ever will experience. Think of the days of the plague in Europe. Think of the horrors of World War II. Think of the death camps. Think of whatever you want to think of as the worst. And if that condition existed throughout the entire world, it still wouldn't be as bad as what's coming that we've studied from chapter 6 on. Chapter 6 through chapter 19. Tribulation period. The most horrendous, awful, terrifying time. A time that will be so bad that people will try to die and wish to die and not be able to. That's what the scripture tells us. Men will seek death and not be able to find it. It will be so horrible. That is the last seven years of this dispensation. When we speak of the church age, we talk of intercalation. You ever heard intercalation? See, one of the benefits of coming here, you learn new words. An intercalation means something inserted as the way that the uh, grammar, theological grammars describe it. Something inserted between two existing things as Wednesday and Thursday, and we add a new day. If you stick a new day between Wednesday and Thursday, suddenly, unexpectedly, it's what we call an intercalation. At the beginning of the week, you couldn't see it coming. All of a sudden, you're told today's not Thursday after Wednesday. Tomorrow's not Saturday. Tomorrow is come up with some name, some new day. We're going to insert a new day. The church age is an intercalation in history. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first coming prophecy has been fulfilled. 
second coming prophecy is yet to come. And one of the reasons that the Jews couldn't understand who Christ was is because they put first coming and second coming prophecies together and they didn't realize there had to be something in between. So where is the victorious? Where is the lion that they were waiting for? No, prophecy said when the Messiah comes, he is going to reign with a rod of iron. So this guy can't be him. They didn't understand the distinction between first and second coming prophecies. We've already looked in Revelation 20 about the kingdom age, a thousand years, six times. It tells us that it's going to be a thousand years long. And we're going to reign and rule with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And now we've come to Revelation 21 and 22, and we're past the end of human history. We're, we're in eternity future. How does this age end and this one begin? This will be very familiar to some of you, but to some of you it may not, and it's critical for you to know it, and it's what we call the rapture of the church. Now you will hear people say, nobody taught the rapture until John Darby came along, and John Darby came up with the idea of the rapture. Well, I hate to inform you, but it was really Jesus Christ came up with it first, and then the Apostle Paul expanded on it, and we have all kinds of information on the rapture of the church. What is the next thing that we know without question is going to happen? And that is the rapture of the church. What is it? How does it happen? How does it affect us? That's what I want to spend five passages. If you understand these five passages, and always remember, Scripture is a unit. We break it up into books, yes, but it is all the Word of God from beginning to end. And it all complements itself and each other. Various passages support and complement each other. If you can put these five passages together, not just for your own comfort, encouragement, and assurance, but for other people, because you're going to run into people and they're going to say, oh, that rapture stuff, I don't believe it. To me, this is one of the most important things that you and I can know in the time that we're living in. So here we go. If you will follow me, and we're going to see how these five passages fit together, starting in John chapter 14. John slips language in that if we are not familiar with the culture of the day and the customs of the day, we completely miss the meaning. So for example, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. And we read that and we say, okay, Jesus had no idea what's happening, what the Father's plan is. It helps us a lot when we realize that that's marriage terminology. That's marriage language. And once we understand that, all of a sudden, it starts making a lot more sense because when a young man and a young woman were engaged or betrothed, as they called it, they would come together, they would have a ceremony, they would make a pledge to each other. The young man would then say, I am going to prepare a place for you. So the bride says, well, when are you going to come and get me? And he says, I don't know. I can't come until the father approves of the place that I'm making for you. So he would go, he would build a house, usually on land that was owned by his father, possibly next to his father's house. When the father felt that he had done, because let's face it, he's a young guy, he's going to get married, he's got this absolutely knockout, gorgeous bride, he can't wait for the, you know, the, the I do's and, you know, to get out of town, right? He'd put up a tent, <laughs> right? Pup tent goes up next day, here I am. No, the father has to pass approval on it. So when we understand that what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to call a bride. I'm here for an engagement. And then I'm going to go, and now we're in John 14, so if you'll follow me, verse 14, let not your heart be troubled. After all that we've read about the tribulation, and after looking around the world, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. By the way, when we believe in Him, we're believing in God. 
In my father's house are many mansions. Mansions, probably better translated, dwelling places. Trust me, they're going to be bigger than... Your place is going to be better than Mar-a-Lago. How's that for an example? Uh, it's going to knock you out. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. Here comes this wedding language. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Don't worry. No matter how long I'm gone, I'm coming back. I will come again. And here's the phrase I want you to get. Receive you to myself. Let's go back to the wedding for just a minute. In ancient times, in the days of Jesus, when the young man came, he would come with all of his rowdy friends. I love to think about the fact that the first miracle Jesus ever performed was turning water to wine. The reason he turned water into wine was because they ran out of wine. I'm of the opinion that they ran out of wine because Jesus showed up with all the disciples, right? So he turns water to wine. Well, when a wedding takes place, the bridegroom comes with his friend, what we call the best man, and a company of his buddies. Remember what John the Baptist said? Someone is coming after me who is mightier than I, I'm not worthy to unleash, unleash, uh, to unloose his sandals. And what did he call himself? I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, some of these thoughts are just pinging into my head as I'm talking. It's kind of dangerous sometimes. <laughs> <clears throat> John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets, according to Jesus Christ himself. All of the prophets prophesied until John, but he said none was greater than him. The greatest of the prophets, the greatest of all the Old Testament saints, which would put him ahead of Moses, everybody else, David, in the kingdom of heaven, he's going to be less than you. Ponder that for just a minute. You hold a higher position. You hold a greater position because of two words that Paul writes over and over again in Christ. No one before the resurrection of Christ was in Christ. That's something that happens only by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit did not happen in the Old Testament. To be placed into union with Jesus Christ, not just as a child of God, not just as a believer, but as what makes it so special? His bride. What did John say? I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We're going to see John describe it. Beautiful, fabulous, but sometimes we get so caught up in the 12 gates and the 12 foundation stones and the gates are pearls and we get so caught up in it we forgot. John is using symbolical language, and I'm not saying it's not going to look like that, but let's not forget he's talking about the bride. He's talking about us. And he's using pictures that stun and amaze us as we think of the beauty. Imagine the walls of the city being transparent gold. Imagine the fact that there's no light needed in the city because the Lamb is the light of the city and that light is going to shine out through the walls of that city and it says the nations will walk in the light of it. Astounding. Amazing. But it's wedding terminology. So here's Jesus saying, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. When the bridegroom with his best friend and all of his buddies came down the street, they're not sneaking up. They're blowing trumpets. They're singing. They're shouting. You can hear them coming a half a mile away. The bride, and we don't realize that this custom of ours for where a young lady has a trousseau or her hope chest or whatever, that goes all the way back to biblical times because once that young man left and said, I'm coming, I can't tell you when, but when the father tells me I'm coming, she lived in expectation every day he's coming. 
Every day she's looking for his coming. That's what we're supposed to be doing about the return of Jesus Christ. When the bridegroom and his friends came down the street, she grabbed up her wedding dress and whatever, who knows, makeup, whatever. She ran out to meet him. He didn't come to the house. She would go running down the street, probably barefoot. Here she is running down the street. I mean, he's come, right? And they would go to the father's house, and there she would prepare herself, and the wedding lasted seven days. Seven days of feasting, seven days of celebrating, seven days of singing. It would just be beautiful. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you. We go up, he comes down, and we meet. Just hold on to that idea. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. This is why I'm doing this tonight, because Paul says this is something we need to know. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. How many people here have loved ones who have died? All of us. Uh, how many of us have people that just were taken from us way, way, way too soon? Paul says, I don't want you to sorrow as those that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's it. Simple faith, childlike faith in the person and the work of Christ. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All those who we know that are believers who have died, when he comes, they come with him. Right? It's going to be a great reunion in the sky. Verse 15, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, Paul wants us to know this is God's word, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Why does he use the term sleep? Because when you sleep, you wake up, right? The body sleeps in the grave. Uh, don't believe in the teaching of soul sleep because the scripture plainly teaches that when we die, instantly we are face to face with the Lord. Soul and spirit goes to be with the Lord. Body goes into the ground. The body is going to wake up. That's important because of something that's coming here. If Jesus brings with him those who sleep in Jesus, and we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a minute, I thought he just said they're coming with him. He did. Now he's saying that they're coming up from the grave. They are. How does this work? Soul and spirit coming down, resurrected body coming up. It's not just going to be a reunion with our loved one. It's going to be a reunion of the soul and spirit with a resurrected body. Your resurrected body, I don't know if this will encourage or discourage you, is going to be the one you have now. But trust me, it'll be better. No more weight problems. No more need for glasses. No more bad hearing for those of us that are getting long in years. None of that. The body rises, soul and spirit comes down, there's a reunion of the total person. We who are alive and remain, we caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. From that moment forward, there will never be a separation again. What did Jesus say? I will receive you to myself. Language in Scripture is very important. Sometimes just failure to understand a single word can set us off track. He didn't say, I'm coming back to earth. I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you. The bridegroom cometh and the bride does what? Leaves everything else behind and we go to meet him. Instantaneous resurrection body. All right? Just look at the next chapter. So we know John chapter 14, he's coming, he's going to receive us. 1 Thessalonians 4 explains how it all happens. When does it happen? Can we prove that the rapture takes place before the tribulation? Yeah, we can, because Paul writes it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning the times and seasons, this is biblical language for dispensations. 
Concerning the times and seasons, you have no need that I should write to you because you yourselves know perfectly. How amazing is this? Before Jesus was resurrected, his disciples said, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what was his answer? It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. There was something that they couldn't know that Paul now says we should know perfectly. We should have full understanding of. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that is Old Testament code language for the tribulation period, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Have you ever heard Christians say to you, well, you know, the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. You know what my answer always is? Not for me, he's not. Why would I say that? Because of what Paul says here, look. You yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, unbelievers, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Hint, hint, tribulation period. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day will overtake you as a thief. Not going to happen. Why? You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Wait a minute. He just used the word sleep in chapter 4 for death. And now he's saying don't sleep. Does that mean we're supposed to do everything we can to try not to die? Here again, two different words used for death. The word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4 is koimaomai, and it means to lay down and take rest. It's a very positive word. Here the word is kathudo. Kathudo means don't be a numbskull. Don't be an idiot. Don't be ignorant. Don't be unconscious and unaware of what's going on. Let us not sleep as others do, he says. But let us watch and be sober. What are we watching for? Ta-da! Coming of the bridegroom. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, that is believers, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Get ready for this. For God did not appoint us to wrath, hint, hint, Old Testament term used about 20 some times for the tribulation period, the day of wrath. God did not appoint us for wrath. What did he appoint us for? He appointed us to obtain salvation, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Here's another sacred cow that we're going to demolish. If you're ready when Jesus comes, you get to go. And if you're not ready, you stay behind and you go through the tribulation. Have you ever heard that one? What's Paul say about it? I like, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of, Take Paul's word over other people's. Verse 10, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, in other words, whether we are scripturally instructed, well-instructed and intelligent, or whether we're like one of those numbskulls wandering around not even knowing what's going on. There are a lot of believers like that, but you know what? Here's the grace of God. Whether we are awake or asleep, we will all live together with him. Does anyone get left behind of the family of God when Christ comes? No. What, what if I'm sinning when he comes? Do I get left behind? No. Why? He already paid for the sin. Next book Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians. If you go through chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul goes into describing what he was just talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord, and he talks about judgment, and he talks about in verse 5 of chapter 1, manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer, since it's a righteous thing that God would repay with tribulation those who are troubling you, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not, God and the, uh, do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel. I mean, this is all about horrible, horrible judgment. What's he talking about right here? Still going on about the day of the Lord. Now, if you're a believer in the first century and you're reading this, maybe even today, you start thinking, am I going to go through that? 
Is that going to affect me? Chapter 2. Now, brethren, Paul says, here he is graciously comforting. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, I will receive you to myself. The dead in Christ will rise first. You see the commonality in the language? We ask you, verse 2, not, do not be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. If some prophet comes to you, and I could name a bunch of them, and you probably know some of their names, and they tell you we're going through the tribulation. There are preachers right now that are saying we're in the tribulation. Are you kidding me? Do you feel like you're going through a worse time than has ever happened in history? I don't think so. He says, I don't care if someone speaks by some spirit, some prophet comes to you, or even if you get a letter, and the letter claims to be from me and my team, as if the day of Christ had come. And some of your translations will say day of the Lord. There are two variants. I won't go into all the details, but in the Greek manuscript tradition, there are basically two lines. One says day of Christ. Day of Christ means this. The other says day of the Lord means this. In either case, if it's come, where are you? You're in the tribulation, right? If someone sends you a letter and says, hey, by the way, we're in the tribulation. Paul says, don't be troubled. Don't let this upset you. Don't let this disturb you. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, right there, tribulation, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We're talking here about Antichrist. Okay? There's a whole lot here. I can't obviously go into all of it, but basically he's saying that time is not going to come until Antichrist is revealed. Will you and I know who he is? No. Have you heard this? They're going to start putting microchips in us. And that microchip is the mark of the beast. But before that, it was your social security number was the mark of the beast. And before that, it was your birth certificate is the mark of the beast. And it goes on and on and on and on. No, he's not here. He's not going to be here while you and I are here. That day can't come until he is revealed. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself as if he is God. In other words, this guy is going to claim to be God in the flesh. This is what... Daniel calls and Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Are you and I going to have to flee? No, we're not going to be here. Who's going to have to flee? Jews in Jerusalem. They're going to have to get out. Verse 5, do you not remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. Verse 6, now you know. Now you know, he says. What is restraining? Take note. Whatever is keeping that Antichrist from coming is a what? Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is the restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit. Who is the what? It's the church. The church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the church goes up, the Holy Spirit goes up. Doesn't mean he's not going to be working during the tribulation period, but he will not be working in the sense that he is now. It'll be totally different. It'll actually go back to Old Testament conditions. Okay, so he concludes, uh, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. When did we see that? Revelation 19. When does it happen? Second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. Are you guys seeing how the passages hold together? I hope so. Last one. Revelation chapter 4. 
First three chapters of Revelation, we've seen the church. The word church occurs 19 times in the first three chapters. Does not occur between chapter 6 and 19, which is all tribulation passage. That should tell us something. If he mentions the church 19 times and then suddenly he doesn't mention the church at all through the whole tribulation period, where's the church? Revelation 4. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Uh, you'll notice the word standing is in italics. That means that it's not there in the original language. A door open in heaven. Uh, literally, the perfect tense is used here and it means a door that was opened at some point in the past and remains open at the present time. When was the door open? It was open when that veil ripped from top to bottom and God said, the way into my presence is free and clear. And everyone is welcome. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things that must take place after this. Literally, that should be translated after these things. You remember the outline that we were given in chapter 1, verse 19? Write the things that you have seen, that's chapter 1, and the things which are, that's chapter 2 and 3, and the things that will happen after these things. Well, now we're after these things. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne, and he who sat was like jasper and sardius stone in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. He goes on and on just with all of this magnificent uh, visual effect. And then we see 24 elders. And the 24 elders have crowns, and you can read all that yourself, but what I want to get to is in, as we move now over into chapter 5, he's still in heaven, he's still drinking in and taking in everything that's happening, and you notice in chapter 5, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living elders and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You are going to see your prayers right there. You're going to know that not a single one of them was ignored. Your prayers to God are like incense. So the prayers of the saints, verse 9, and they, these are the 24 elders along with the angels, are singing a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain and you have redeemed somebody to God by your blood. What does it say? Us. You have redeemed us. Who is the us? It's the church. It's the only one it can be. How do we know that? You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made somebody kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. What is the only group of people in all of human history who are royal priests? Church age believers. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the rapture of the church is immediately made a member of the royal family and a member of an eternal priesthood. Didn't happen in the Old Testament, not going to happen in the tribulation, not going to happen in the kingdom. That's a designation that belongs only to us. Why is that important? Because if... John is called up to heaven in chapter 4 and verse 1, and in heaven he sees an innumerable company of people who are thanking God for making them kings and priests. What does that tell us? The rapture of the church has taken place, and that's why from chapter 6 to chapter 19, we never read the word church. What does all of that mean? Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Keep looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that what we've covered tonight will challenge you every single day, not just to expect, it could be today, but to pray that it will be today. Do you know what the last prayer in the Bible is? Do you know who prays the last prayer in the Bible? Turn to the end of Revelation. We might as well just... See, I told you we'd finish tonight. Here we are. Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, to you these things in the churches. Now we're talking to the church again. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Who's praying the prayer? The church. Have you ever thought that if the book of Revelation and the last book of all the books of the Bible ends with the church praying that prayer, have you ever thought that maybe he's not going to come until the church cries out for him to come? Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you prayed that he would come? I have to tell you, I pray it every day. Every day. Because as I look into the future, and yeah, we all have hopes, dreams, plans, there are good things out there ahead that we all would love to experience, but I have to tell you the trajectory of history, and particularly the trajectory of our country right now, doesn't give me a lot of hope. There are things on our horizon that I do not want you to have to go through, and I do not want my children and my grandchildren to have to go through. Things in our world could get really bad really quick. You know what that motivates me to do? Come Lord Jesus. I would encourage you to pray that prayer. And I'm going to end with that prayer tonight. So let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we all unite right now in this room as we gather together around your word and in the power and the presence, uh, the control of God the Holy Spirit, we do pray that the Lord Jesus will come quickly. Uh, we realize that as he uh, waits and as we wait for him, there is work to be done. There are wonderful things to enjoy and experience. Uh, there are times with friends and loved ones. But Father, uh, we know that nothing we can experience on this earth can compare to what we will experience in his presence. So Father, I do pray that uh, you will teach us to look for that blessed hope and to pray that that blessed hope become a reality to us. May the Lord Jesus come soon, we pray. In his precious name, amen. amen.